All right, we're on. Well, hey, uh, welcome to Raise the Bar, uh, the Sky High and Fly Jump Camps podcast. I'm your host, Troy Haynes, and I'm excited to welcome today Jonathan Broom Edwards. How you doing, Jonathan? Troy, sir. Pleasure to be here. Um, I'm all right, mate. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Busy time, but um, I'm enjoying what I'm doing at the moment. Awesome. Well, what is what are you up to? Uh, is this this training or work related or what's going on? Training, training's uh, yeah, it's ramped up. It's uh, it's I'm in winter training at the moment, so lots of volume, lots of uh, grunt work, as we'd call it. Uh-huh. And alongside that, I've started an osteopathy degree, so I'm doing that part time. Um, wow. As well as seeing clients in a, I'm, I'm a therapist as well, so I'm, I, you know, I work alongside my athletics career to keep my mind active. Um, and other than that, uh, I've moved into a new house, so I'm doing some DIY. <laughs> Right. So okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you got a lot of things going on. Lots of lots of irons in the fire, as it as it were. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of background, Jonathan? I was I, I'm just going to tell everybody straight up that uh, I was you know I came across Jonathan's uh, stuff on your your stuff on Instagram and uh, where it seems like I get all my information <laughs> and uh, I'm looking through there and oh yeah and I, I remember you and I, I I may have just commented on something I don't even remember and. Uh, you are gracious in replying even because some people don't, you know, they're either too busy or you're not, you don't have enough likes for them or you know, <laughs> whatever it is that, that happens. And um, you graciously responded. Then we kind of got into a, you know, going back and forth about maybe doing a podcast. And, you know, I didn't really do any homework on you. I just watched your jumps and jumping was impressive. And, you know, the heights that I was looking at were, you know, impressive heights. These weren't, you know, uh, the kind of high school kids that I'm working with or, you know, even small college. So um, I had no idea that you were a, a Paralympian. So, you know, that's, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. So why don't you tell us about uh, how that all started? I was reading your, your Wikipedia, but I'm sure you could tell it better than I can. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, right. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a Paralympian, but for a lot of my life, I didn't kind of know that my impairment could classify me for Paralympic uh, sport. Uh, I was born with what's called telopes equinovirus, uh, otherwise known as clubbed foot, um, which have predominantly affects my left foot. Uh, I had a few things going on with my right foot as well. Uh, this was all from birth. So I was born with deformed feet, had to go through multiple procedures, surgery, um, kind of bracing different shoes as I was growing up, um, orthotics uh, for a, long, a, a big part of my life. Um, but... You know, my, you know, I thank my mum. She always pushed me to to just try everything, try all different sports, and join in and do as much as I could with what I what I had, what you know, the cards that I was dealt. Right. Um, basketball was my my love when I was younger, and um, so to be able to, uh, you know, I always wanted to train, to be able to dunk the ball, to be able to have hang time. Um, I enjoyed being up, you know, going up for a jump shot, going up the other people would jump up and then they'd go down and then I'd put the shot shot away. So it was something I was really passionate about. Um, and I just couldn't train my left side. You know, I can train it to, to match my right side. I've got a really strong right, right calf, right, you know, right leg, but my left leg um, has atrophy in the muscles. It has wastage uh, or dystrophy rather. So <clears throat> it doesn't function on my right foot. I'm not able to plan to flex my foot. I can dorsiflex it which is lifting it up. Um, I can just about move it in and out, but not that much. Um, but for me, I have to work extremely hard on my technical model, on my curve running in terms right. of high jump in order to maximize what I can get off my left side. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a journey, yeah, like coming into Paralympic sport when I was 24. Wow. So you said you found out about that late, the fact that it qualified. So you had already been competing you know, just the way you were against everybody else, right? And and yeah, just just by chance, I I tried out high jump one year at university. Um, in between in between years, um, you know, my, a lot of my basketball squad had gone off on placement years, and I hadn't. So going into the next year, I didn't have my my team. Right. Uh, so that year, I just decided to try something different. I tried tried high jump out. Found I was pretty good at it. Um, and I was spotted by a sports massage therapist whose dad was a coach in Paralympic sport. And that was the kind of thing that got the ball rolling, got me introduced okay. to the, the coaches um, and started off the whole 
the whole process of classification. So it was literally a sink or swim moment. I was chucked right into the deep end, um, won silver at my first international in Lyon 2013, which is in France. Um, and since then, been having the battles for progressing up to the gold medal, which I did in 2019 and then 2021. Saw that, saw that. I actually have a, a clip of you that I was uh, ready to share. Let's let's take a look at that really quick. I've got uh, Jonathan here in action. We're going to share. Took this right off of YouTube with a screen recording. It's one of the great experiences of my life just recently discovering these. And uh, here you are. This is at 2.10. Now, he cleared that. You see how highly delighted he was. This has been a right old tussle between three athletes this final. Lepiato from right. Poland, who was the defending champion, was involved in this as well. But the best he could... All right. So I, I'm going to turn down the sound on that just for a second and back it up. This is some of my favorite stuff is watching video. So like I said, um, those of you that out there, if you're listening to the podcast, obviously you can't see this, but we are going to post this on, on YouTube as well. So there will be some that can see it. And uh, I'm noticing a, a very good high cycling running technique, which I'm always trying to train my athletes to get. I see what I would call a very good uh, slide step, the last step here where that cycling kind of stops and you get that foot down on the ground quickly. Right. And then we've got a, a good heel toe, heel toe setup, body lean back to match the leg. A really good technique. I see a high drive, knee drive and ride. And one of those unique leg kick out moves. Um, I've I've jumped against guys like that and, and coached against guys like that. I've never actually had anybody do that, but it's not an uncommon move. And uh I'm wondering if that was something that you picked up or just did inherently from when you started, when you started jumping? Well, the hitch, the, um, the hitch out of the leg um, is actually what I've, what I've found as I've worked on my technical and actually more recently is the, it's, it's about like helping me get the positioning over the bar. Right. And it's not, it's actually one of my least efficient parts of my, my jump. It's something I've been working quite hard to to help rectify but what you'll notice with my left foot is that I'm unable to get the the heel to bump you know to to bring the heel through quicker because it you know it's a lot thinner it's a lot weaker it's, it doesn't right. have it's almost like a drag yeah I can see it right there we're looking yeah. at it right there so yeah you can't quite get it that high cycle finish right into the knee drive okay and you know if I were to pick apart my own technical there I am I'm almost leaning a little bit into the bar now just to give a bit of context to this because on the, this is a two meter 10 bar but for the conditions that was probably one of my best jumps I've ever, right. I've ever pulled out because as we turned up to the competition it was biblical torrential rain like I'm talking <laughs> biblical. after a, I was in Tokyo for three weeks and it was beautiful sunshine 40 degree heat and on that day it was freezing cold so right. it was such a change. So this is where, you know, the mindset of like what I did in terms of my mindset building up to this and during the competition, that's something I will always be proud of because I was able to keep my cool even when like the, you know, the conditions were tor torrential, you know, dreadful. <laughs> right. And the chips were down at some parts of that competition. But for me, like I'm, I'm working to get stronger on my left side to almost allow myself to go up a little bit more before I'm reaching for the bar so then yeah. you know that's me picking apart my own technical but for when it comes to a major championships like this you know you, you're just praying for what sticks from your training you know absolutely it's about, it's about competing and I competed well in that one well so what um nobody likes rain when it comes to being a high jumper um you know I've had uh Doug Nordquist on this show before uh, Doug told me about, you know, one time when he was, cause he ran a really fast curve and leaned, I swear, almost about 45 degrees to the left, you know, and it was slick. And he just said, he just went, you know, out to the side and was like, you know, he, he described it as nipples deep under the pit, <laughs> like all the way under, you know, and, um, it's terrifying the first time that happens to you. And then of course, after that, there's no way you're going to 
run as fast, lean as much, or try to get away with as much. Because once you slip on any given day, I, I know from that personal experience, you're just super hesitant about, you know, really trusting it to hold up, like you said, under pressure. So a 210 jump in the rain is is impressive, especially with, like you said, the chips were down. So yeah, they really were. I think I was on a I was on a third attempt at the two hundred seven bar beforehand, um, uh-huh. and that was that was a really that was my probably my best jump of the competition. So to pull that out when it when it mattered, that was that you know I'm, I, I you know thank my stars for that to pull it out at that point. But um, you, yeah, you you can never you can never fully prepare for what the the rain does for you, but you can always visualize what you need to do around setting yourself up right, you know, and you are going to be a bit slower. You are going to have to work really, really hard on your technical in order to still make it happen. And um, yeah, for, for a lot of the other competitors in that competition, they started probably 10 centimeters lower than what they were, normally would. You could see it in their body language, see it in their faces. They were really like stressing out. Right. And because I'm, I'm from Britain, I'm used to a little bit of rain. Um, <laughs> But also, I'd like I'd visualize the what ifs leading up to this competition, and what would I need to do if it rained? And you know, I'd stapled down my my run up mark. I'd brought a poncho, I brought a towel, I brought an umbrella. I'd got everything just in case it rained, even right. though the three weeks build up was beautiful sunshine. Yeah. So, so because of that, I t- started the competition ten centimeters higher than everyone else, and that led to my victory, I suppose. Then. That is, uh, you would be what we over here, what we call a good boy scout, you know, and, and over here, the boy scouts, you know, the motto is be prepared, right? So you were, sounds like you were prepared for every contingency and had already wrapped your brain around, like you said, having a plan, you know, what you would do if, and everybody else sounds, sounds like they were just blindsided, like sunny the day before. And all of a sudden, here you go, you know, Noah's yeah. flood, what are you going to do? So that's impressive. Um, I'm I'm so fascinated by this world, and I, I'm a little bit upset sometimes at the way that uh, you guys get treated. When I say you guys, I'm going to say Paralympians in general, because you know I watched. Um, I've been an Olympics junkie since I was eight years old. I, my mom showed me my first Olympic games. I was seven, 1972. I'm watching the games in Munich, Germany, and I'm on you know TV like this at eight years old, going wow. I'm seeing gymnastics and basketball and boxing and all these sports, you know, and I'm like, what is this? What, what, what is this mom? She's like, these guys are competing in the Olympics. And I go, well, what do they do? You know? And then I saw my first medal ceremony, you know, and they're stepping up on the box and put the medals around them. I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. That's the greatest thing ever. So, you know, every time I'd be watching that, you know, in 76, you know, at, at 12 years old, I got to watch, you know, um, great American boxing teams and on. So, you know, I'm, I'm in love with it. I love watching it. And I watched it in 2021, like, like everybody else, you know, waiting the extra year. And then you guys get to go like a week or so later, a couple weeks later, I, I forget how it was. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, why, why are we, why are we pushing them aside and making them wait? I'm like, this is the big spectacle, right? Let's do it all together. You know, and, and I've, I've heard real, you know, I understand that there are many, many, classifications like you mentioned you mentioned just a there's a couple i know and and i think you've can you can qualify for more than one sometimes or how, how does that all go it's a world that i really don't know much about there, the, there is a difficulty i think with like joining it up there's there's certain competitions they're starting to bring it more into a, you know a merged or combined um event i think like i've, I've spoken to many people about the you know the logistics of having a fully combined Olympics Paralympics you know merged competition it it would probably actually be too much logistically to have us all in like a Paralympic you know an Olympic village have us all kind of competing in in together it would also go on for a lot lot longer right you know so actually to have it separate have it as two separate entities almost does give us as Paralympians, the the kind of time in the under the spotlight. That's um, good. Although there are many events like the Diamond Leagues, which can could easily be like integrated, 
you know, and probably should be. There's there's no reason why you know we shouldn't be achieving the same kind of prize money, you know, as right. as, as able bodied. Like, I mean, I think the most prize money I've ever got in my whole career is about two hundred euros. Um, you know, I've not right. been to a diamond league where I can actually compete against similar um, competitors and earn ten grand or whatever it is. You right, know, they, right. it's just not it's not quite there. Uh, it is the movement is getting better. But like you say, there's a lot of complexity to Paralympic sport. There's a lot of class, different classifications. You could be in two different classifications. Say you had a neurological disorder like cerebral palsy, but you're also a visually impaired athlete. You could potentially go under the under right. two. It's just a case that, you know, for actual selection for the Paralympics, you kind of want to go with what one have I got more chance to actually medal? Right. Um you know, there's there's been separations of classes. Like my class used to be combined with the um, below the knee amputees. Right. Um, now, so I'm a T44. They are now a T64. It's just there's it almost becomes a quite difficult for the general public to observe and understand all the the different intricacies. But that's not to say that it shouldn't be publicised more because people still want to watch it. You know, there's right. there is. I mean, if you've seen, I've, my roommate in in Tokyo is a visually impaired javelin thrower. Can you believe? Right. You know, mm. there's there's people with one leg jumping, like high jumping. Yeah. You know, there's people without without an arm doing certain events. Like, the, some of the things that pe- these these athletes do is is quite incredible. Yeah. So it's just allowing the public to actually see it, which yeah. is needs to happen. Well, uh, for instance, I have in in my you know my Instagram saved files, which uh, basically I'm a junkie again. There, I'm I'm usually have on my feed athletes like yourselves, uh, yourself, coaches, trainers, you know, uh, fan sites for certain jumpers, and sometimes I'll see something and and somebody's you know doing squats or step ups or lunges, and then I see plyometrics going on or I see a competition jump of some kind and. Sometimes I'm like, oh, wow, that's really good. And I stick it in a folder, you know, immediately. And then I remember seeing what you're talking about. I saw a kid who's, you know, standing there with crutches, throws the crutches down and is hopping on one leg, right? And goes up and and you're watching just going, wow, just the fact that he's going towards the bar is amazing enough because he's he's literally weren't running on one leg like um I follow Lucas, you know, I think it's, Lucas, yeah, hard. Yeah. I mean, he's awesome. I watch his training all the time. I'm like, this guy works harder than most jumpers I know. So I'm, you know, just, it's inspiring to me, you know, ever since I was a kid, there was a a commercial here in the States that I saw when I was about seven or eight years old. I can't remember, but it showed a, a young boy waking up in the morning and you see him start to roll up out of bed and he doesn't have either arm. He's, you know, I don't know if it was congenital or, you know, I'm pretty sure, but you know, he, he reaches over in it with his feet into his bedside drawer and starts pulling out his socks and putting on his socks with his feet, right. To get up and right. go about his day. And I remember watching that going, man, I have got no excuses for anything the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Like get up off your butt and go do something, you know, like you're saying, yeah, I love the fact you said your mom was, you know, Hey, just go out there and do the best you can, yeah. you know, instead of like, you know, it's, it's, Awesome. Uh, I'm a big fan. Oh, I've, I've, I've had the privilege of seeing so many um, incredible things with, with certain Paralympians. I've seen there's what a, a good friend of mine, like wheel towards some steps. Like he has no leg, no legs. He's got off of the wheelchair. He's then dragged his wheelchair up the steps with his arms. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, fair play. Um, going back to Lucas as well. Lucas is almost like he's a he's evolving with his high jump because he's always historically gone over, you know, front first. Right. But he's now almost trying to train himself with the one leg to get the same kind of like lean back position and go over the bar backwards to get right. to raise his hips over the bar. I mean, just I can't even comprehend how you do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's he's doing that, and it's like I, I, you know, I love to see amazing things from that. Um, I've competed against Lucas before, believe it or not. When we've had Raza scheme, um, Raza point scheme, so because of based on the world record, 
of two classes which are very different you know for for one of the competitions he jumped one meter 78 and to beat him i needed to jump at least two meters 10 based on the rasa point system right another competition because our world record had progressed um and theirs hadn't i then had to jump two meters 14 to <laughs> to beat him and i didn't oh, actually, yeah. so i got a bronze to him so it's like you know there is there is ways to merge it but again i think it's a case of making it a little bit simpler and having something there to explain to people who are watching yeah what's going on with everybody <laughs> you know because yeah there's a there's a lot to you know uncover yeah. with well, like you said, I mean, it, it just just watching alone, I've been able to pick up. Okay, you know, you you've got an amputee or maybe someone who's born congenitally without a certain part, hopping on one leg, and then you've got somebody else that has the prosthetic, right? And they they run up and jump. You know, I've seen uh, long and triple jump. You know, do that. Um, like you're saying, the visually impaired. I've seen the one where there's somebody clapping right down the runway so that they can hear. And and run down and and go forward into the sand. Have you so, seen the guy that reaches the pit and lands on his coccyx? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. ouch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, like I said, all all of that is is awe inspiring. Like you said, and and just the attitude inherent in that. Like you said, your your buddy going up to the stairs and then hopping off the wheelchair and dragging up with one arm. It's not like you know sitting around and going, "Hey, could you come carry this up the stairs for me?" You know, it's just like. I, I don't have that time. I don't have time for that. <laughs> I'm just going to do this myself, you know, and that's just, it's, it's mind blowing to me. And it's, it is, I have a, a literal folder of, of inspiration. You know, if I'm, I'm waiting, if there's ever anybody that needs that kick in the, in the butt to go, Hey, <laughs> I want to hear this, this whining that you're doing. Like, look at this guy, you know, you got, you got uh, more gifts and you're doing less with them, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So what is what's coming up uh, next? And you said you're you're in the midst of training um, and heavy volumes and all that. I'm I'm assuming when you're saying heavy volumes, we're talking about uh, volumes of lifting and plyos, or is this also jumps? What's what's that entail? Oh, it's uh, the amount of drills that my coach is getting me to do around a circle. Um, there's volume of that. It's 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 volume of like foot contacts and like feet loading. You know, sand work. Um, Bosu ball work to strengthen my feet. My in my gym, yes, there's there's volume of lifts, plyometrics. It's just like almost continual circuits, and I've got sled runs, I've got other runs. Um, it's just a it's just a lot, you know. It's a lot of, uh, of of work just to get me fit as well. Um, burn off some of the holiday timber, you know. That I <laughs> in right. And what's coming next i mean the next two years are actually really busy it, it was even busier we we were actually due to have a europeans and a world championships both years right so 2023 and 2024 um as well as the paralympics in 2024 however the europeans have been cancelled so we've got a world champs next year we've got a world champs the following year and we've got a paralympics in that same year wow. um just because a lot of our major comp championships were moved because of covid uh so you know, we've we had a down year last year, um, and then this uh, coming year is going to be a world champs in Paris. So yeah, that's that's oh man, going to Paris for the Olympics. How cool would that be? Um, that's the other thing to me about the Olympics that's so awesome is the bouncing around the globe. You know, like yeah. getting to see the venues, and you know. I was, you know, fortunate enough to be here in, in college at UCLA when the Olympics were here in 84. So, you know, the Olympic Village was really close by in LA and, you know, UCLA was one of the training facilities for a lot of the athletes, you know, they would come by and, and use the track. And um, that was, that was really cool. It wasn't as many as I would have thought, actually. I'm not really sure where everybody did the bulk of their training, but there were some. And, um, you know, now we're coming up on 2028 coming back here to LA. So it'll be what, since 84, that's 16, like 44 years, I guess. So a long, long skip in between uh, Los Angeles and the U S but it's uh, you know, if they end up doing anything at the Coliseum, that'll be amazing. Cause that's just such a, you know, an old, old venue with lots of history in it. And um, so you, how old are you now, Jonathan? I'm getting on mate. I'm uh, 34 now. 
34. So 36 uh, in Paris. And your your personal best, is it 215 or have you gone higher than 215 now? I've gone higher, but not officially. I actually, the in the in my some of my training jumps in Tokyo in the beautiful sunshine, I did clear a two meter sixteen bar, and that mm-hmm. was in that was in training. You know, right. so I was feeling really optimistic for for the competition. I felt in right. a really good place, um, and then it tipped it down. <laughs> but I, you know, I did I did what I what I needed to do. Right, right. So. 216, 215 is seven feet and a half inch. So 216, I'm going to guess is what, like seven feet one or seven. I don't know what they're pair. I know there's, it doesn't always measure out exactly. The metric world is still a mystery to me. If, if, if any of you are listening to the podcast in, in the past and comparing them to now, I'm, I'm always just like, you know, when, when we grew up, they, it was always just feet and inches. You know, they, they didn't bother to measure the metric. So it was just six, four, six, 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 eight. And then, um, you know, when I got into college, it was kind of all about the metrics, but it was almost like they didn't trust us that the fact that we were students in college and obviously had a little bit of intelligence that the guys would never tell us. They would just say, oh, we're putting the bar to 610, you know, and and it would be 210, which is 610 and three quarters, but they wouldn't tell you that. And then uh, one of the famous ones I was at, they actually went from 210 and they somehow they managed to skip 215 and went to 220. So. <laughs> So it was like we went from 610 to 220 and only one guy made it and everybody else missed. And then we're going, waiting for him to come back and say, okay, we're going to put the bar at 7-2. And the guy comes back and goes, uh, we we already had the bar at 7-2, so we're, we're going to go to, you know, four and a quarter. And we're all like, what? You skipped a height? You know, and it's like, oh, the bar's already gone up. You can't put it back down. You know, like, oh, okay, great. Thanks. You guys did a great job. That um, is the, uh, that's the aim for me, actually, is uh, the two-meter 20 bar. So well, seven foot, seven foot four is that? Or two twenty is seven two and a half. Seven yeah, two and a half. seven um, two because that would be for my category a new world record. So uh, that's the goal for the next. Awesome, year. awesome. So I the the first thing that occurred to me is um, as we were talking about your volume of training and and you had mentioned that your left leg you know having uh, some some atrophy and and or just did you say atrophy or dystrophy or well, it's got both dystrophies, muscle wastage, and I have muscle wastage in my soleus muscles, but I have muscular atrophy through my gastroc muscles of the calf. Okay. Um, I just can't, and you know, they don't, they don't strengthen up that much. I've, I've right, been, right. Well, the, the thing that occurred to me was, you know, um, I just had a, a, a podcast yesterday morning with um, a guy named Dario Saisan. He does Saisan training. I don't know if you've seen him on Instagram now, but relatively new in the last few months i've been noticing his stuff and it's it's um it's a little bit different a little bit more cutting edge i really like him and uh we were talking about two leg versus one leg of training and i was just thinking i go wow jonathan sounds like you know my first thought was do you do you know traditional front and back squats with two legs you do deadlifts with two legs i go maybe that would be you know, in your training, maybe it would be more beneficial. He was talking about a like a 70-30 split between two-legged lifts and one-legged lifts. And he was saying he's leaning towards the one. And I agreed with him. I go, well, you know, you can't think of a spot in our sport or even in our event where you're pushing with both legs at the same time, right? So <laughs> your takeoff's a single leg. So why wouldn't you train it that way, right? So, but I was just curious. The first thing that popped in my head when you're talking about one side being maybe a little bit weaker is does that affect how you lift and and what kinds of lifts and whatnot? Yeah. So I, I kind of followed that um that kind of 70-30, um, like you just said, that I will still do uh, back squats with two legs. I will do hang clean and hang snatch with with my two legs, but I will then do single leg step ups with a bar on my back. I will do um lunge you know split lunge sort of thing um mm-hmm. back i'll do single leg leg press um and then it's single leg rdls and like that sort of you know right, right. Load as well and then when it comes to like any sandpit work i'm doing single leg hops um with plyometrics i'm doing single leg bounds um as well as skips uh and you know i do still have some like double leg bunnies and like yeah. for height as well as distance like all of these things are, you know, I'm conditioning, I'm generally conditioning, but I'm also trying to isolate the weakness because that actually my step up is actually weaker because of the complexities of my, my leg and my hip. 
my step up is weaker with my right foot going down. Yeah. So it's like in that kind of isolated movement, that's where I've got a weakness that I'm really trying to push on at the moment. So it's, it's, it's always good to kind of do the individual work as well. Right. Right. That's, it's an area, um, you know, things have changed. Like I said, when I was jumping in college, my, my last year in college was 86. My last year in competition was 92. Um, I, I took a last shot at trying to get to the U S trials, you know, in the high jump in 92. And by then I was 28 and I thought I was washed up. <laughs> I go, I haven't made anything happen. You know, I, I hadn't PR'd since 86, you know, so six years later, I'm still struggling along and I, you know, hung them up. So when I, when I asked you how old you were and you said you're 30, 34, I'm like, wow, 34, that's, that's hanging in there. But you know, so many things have happened. You know, I know you got a later start than some. And- yeah, I didn't, I didn't come up the grassroots. You know, I, I had conditioning in basketball and yes, I had some loading with the jumps I was doing then, but it wasn't the specific kind of pounding that you'll have with a high jump, with high jump throughout your, you know, right. grassroots career. And, you know, so my training age is probably a lot lower. You know, I may well be in my 28, you know, right. 28 year in terms of training age. Um, but I'm still getting better. I'm still getting better in and PRing in um, my my strength. I was very unfortunate last year, um, sorry, the year before, um, to like not get my two meter 16 officially. I just wobbled the bar and I knocked it off. So, and to do that in Tokyo as well and actually clear the bar, yeah. even though it wasn't official. Right. You know, I'm still, I'm still progressing. And all the work I'm doing now is those one percenter improvements. It's the amount of drills that I'm doing now is to in, improve my movement around the curve and get right. me as strong as possible against the force of the curve. Right. So I'm hopeful, you know, I've, I've got two more years to give it, give it a proper bash. Um, I've always got that medal now, uh, you know, and, but for me, I want to come out with a bet, you know, one more PR because I felt in shape to do it for a few years now. Right. Yeah. That's, it's awesome. Um, another technical question just popped my head. You're saying, you know, you're leaning into the curve and, you know, the force of the curve. Um, I'm, I've just in the last few years become, I'm not want to say fascinated or driven by, but curious about, um, I've talked with so many of my jumpers over the years and, you know, I'm always really concerned with what the drive knee is doing, you know, coming up and across, you know, for a lot of jumpers, you'll see that high up and across the Stefan Holm, you know, way up and over. It helps you stop that swing up. And, you know, I like to leave it up and ride it up and do other stuff from there. The arms, I mean, there's so much going on with the arms, like how they're driven up, what do you do with them once you're off the ground? Do you drop them to your hips? Do you reach for your heel? You know, like, so there's, there's three limbs that are kind of all over the place. Right. And then I'm like, well, the jump leg just jumps. It, you you hit and you extend up. And when you watch it on film, almost everybody, even, even a novice jumper that's converting way over towards the pit, when you draw a line from their toe or their heel and then to toe off that straight line will pretty much go right through the leg that leg goes straight. Now they might be, you know, going in instead of up, but eventually, you know, it's a straight leg, straight leg, straight leg. It's getting higher and higher, more vertical. Great. But I'm looking at it going functionally. What do you do with that leg? You know, from heel toe, you roll up onto your toe and then you extend with a lot of power and there you go. And it never occurred to me. And I'd been coaching since 1988 that you could train that leg more specifically and and more for its job and my thought of the job is to counteract all the forces that are going towards the bar because as we're running towards the bar i'm both my my best friend and my own worst enemy because as i'm running towards that bar the energy is going the wrong direction in some ways like i tell my kids i go there's a big black hole in the middle of that pit and when you're running at it the black hole is going yes come here you know more gravitational pull pulling you across and you have to, it's almost like a science fiction movie where you get there, you go, oh my God, we're flying into the sun, you know, like hang a left and hit the gas, you know, and, and like, what is redirecting, you know, the knee drive, the arm drive and every, and I was talking about the other three limbs all the time, 
like looking at them, segment analysis, you know, joint comparative joint analysis, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait a minute now. That left leg is on the ground. It has an opportunity to push against that curve, just like everything else. Right. So why do you we lean back so much and get that heel toe, heel toe? Because we don't want to come right over that foot. And also, why do I lean so much for me to my left and for you to your right? Because I don't want to come right through there really quick and go towards the bar. I want to slow that down and try to try to go up more. So I started, excuse me, looking at plyometrics that go laterally, you know, more and more lateral. And also, first time I saw someone drop down off of a box and jump backward up onto the box, that caught my eye because I remember thinking, now, you're not going to jump backwards. You, that's impossible, right? We're moving too fast. But I'm just thinking if I, as I roll through and I have, even if there's a little bit of ability to push both back and away with that leg, because I'd never thought of it before. You know what I mean? So it's like, and I started seeing all this sing, the single leg plyometric stuff coming out. And usually when I see that, it's the outside leg pushing back, right? This way. And I said, hey, what if you take the inside leg over? and start really leaning and pushing, you know, against your own body weight. Well, uh, I'm thankful for my, my coach uh, who sadly retired um, this year. Uh, he's, he's now mentoring my current coach. So his name's Graham Ravenscroft, but he, he was a fan, a fan of basketball as well. Mm -hmm. And that part of my training, a big part of my training was agility work. And it was, you know, it was taking things from like, you know, the basketball suicides, for example, where mm -hmm. you run into the line, you're then trying to change direction and go the other way. Yes. So a lot of my circuits would be, you know, if I've got a bunch of, of cones, I'm going from left to right and I'm sidestepping. So I go, I sidestep, sidestep, change direction, sidestep, change direction, then go yeah. a bit again, change direction, change direction. And though that kind of movement was the thing which was helping me strengthen my ability to withstand the curve on a box going from left over, right over, left over, right over. And, you know, you're doing just the, the, that activation in that directional plane. Right. And the diagonal plane rather. And that for me has been a huge improvement on my, my left foot's ability to deal with the force. Right. Because what we've got to remember is when we're running a curve, we're actually, we stay on the curve right until the moment we then go into takeoff position. Yeah. The takeoff position actually comes slightly off curve to withstand, to change that horizontal force into vertical force. And the curve itself, this is where, like, do we need to actually focus on the other three limbs, as you said, or will the curve create that movement that allows us to then get our hips in the air? Right. There is. There is some hip thrust that can be done once you've taken off. But I actually believe that if you can run the curve well enough, you're almost getting your body position right for takeoff. And then in the air, it's going to do its thing. It's yeah. whether or not you like, it's when we kind of disturb that takeoff position, we lean towards the bar. Then all of a sudden we're going in a slightly off direction. We're then having to flail our legs or something to kick. Yes. And and get over in the bar in the right position. So that's what I'm really working on now is to get that takeoff position absolutely nailed, withstand all the force of the curve, so that once I've taken off and I've gone up, I'm continuing to go up and yeah. go into that kind of parabola, that arc. Right, and right. Really, that will take me to the higher heights. So you're you're fighting like I like all my kids are fighting for is what I call VTOL, which is vertical takeoff and landing, right? Like like a jet that you know fires its rockets up and then takes off. We're kind of like you know we're striving for as as pure as you can get there. And I've I've had a chance to jump against and train with uh, a couple of different jumpers that could do. I could never hit a literal straight up and down vertical. I think you know, I don't even know what the degrees were because, you know, back in my dinosaur days, we didn't have any, any of these videos. I can watch anybody on video. Now I shoot it with my camera. It looks perfect. I've got perfect resolution. I can slow it down. I can still see everything. You know, when I, when we were jumping when I was in college, we had uh, either eight millimeter film, which was fantastic, but it was expensive and, and it was hard to get feedback from it because it took a week to get, get it back. 
or you had a videotape, which was immediate, but it was grainy, you know, when you try to slow it down and look at it. So, um, you know, hitting vertical is, is a real art form. And again, one of the guys I trained with Lee Balkin at UCLA was a seven, three jumper in high school, jumped seven, four and a quarter. And I think by the time he left, he jumped seven, six, you know, and he was, he was like six, four, maybe a 160 pounds, perfect, tall, thin, fast, you know, could run the quarter in like 48, you know, something like that. He's a 400 meter. He's just fast and light and everything. I hated him. He's, he's a great teammate. I, I'm, I'm joking. He was, he was very tough to compete both, you know, with and against. And I think I beat Lee once and I had to PR twice to do it. And I keep telling everybody all the way through college, every meet that I PR'd in, I go, this is very humbling. Every single time I PR'd in college, I never won the meet, not once. When I jumped 215 for the first time, I came in second, and I think it was to Lee. Then when I jumped 220, uh, a couple, or 218, I jumped a few weeks after that, uh, which was 272, right? So yeah, I jumped 218, and I think I came in third. And then my senior year, I jumped two, whatever, seven, two and a quarter is, which I think is 219. I think I jumped 219 and I came, and that was the first PR in that meet. And then I jumped 222 and I still came in second to a guy to jump 225. So I was like, what do I have to do? Right. And then when you were competing against Lee, Lee, every time we saw film, he was just his takeoff every time. I don't know, you know, I, I need to meet his, his high school coach because I've, I've heard him. Uh, talked of with a lot of respect, you know, not just from coaching Lee, but from some others and uh, whatever he did with him, he was just, he always came off the ground straight up and down. And then would, you know, like you're saying that the parabola after that, you know, and he was ungodly flexible on top too. So even if he hadn't done a, a perfect job in his approach, then he, he could, what I call noodle his way over, you know, cause he was, he was one of those people that could look like it touches, you know, his, back of his head to his heels you know so frustrating to jump against very humbling if you've ever watched uh, Marco Fascinotti jump he was very much like that that guy could bend bend in half I'm sure when like, it, was, it was always good watching him and training with him mm-hmm. okay. so. well it's the the thing that's fascinating me I know about you Jonathan is you know now I've been coaching and you know doing this for so many years is that I'm not what you would call a formula person like I don't sit there and go okay look this is the Haynes system. This is exactly what you're going to do. You're going to run up and you're going to be just like me. When I hit my curve, I went gather and double arm, boom, you know, and that's just the way we do it here. And that's the only way to jump, you know, cause I've, I've been around too long. I've watched too much film. You know, the guy who invented the event had a reverse double arm, which nobody does anymore. The Fosbury itself. It's like, I've seen two different people that I've, either jumped against or actually trained one who was a girl in high school that did the reverse arm thing, you know, very, very rare. Then you've got your single armors, you've got your double armors with the gather. You've got some people, what I do, the whip back double arm, you know, and once you start breaking it down, you go, okay, there's a lot of different styles here that work. And then some people drive that knee up and leave it up and just sail over and they never do a thing with it after that, but they leave it up there. Some people drive it up and immediately throw it back down and pop their hips and do other things. And some people, you know, throw their head straight back. Some people put their chin on their chest. Some people turn their head to the side and throw back this way. Some people reach that arm back, right? So as you go through and you realize there's like a lot of mixing and matching we can do here because there's not one textbook way, you know, to get this thing done. It's like, how did you get over it? And if it worked for you, because there's body styles, there's fast twitchers there's you know whatever you want to categorize them as so you know when i look at stuff it's it becomes what are their strengths right what are their inherent strengths as they're going through and then what can we you know make stronger what can we fix you know do they need to get some flexibility do they need to like you're saying work on your your drive leg maybe you know for some reason maybe i'm not be able to driving that knee up the way i could or whatever so let's do more hip flexor work and um, it's just fascinating. And that's why I, I love the event so much. You know, I go, you know, for me, I'll tell the kids, one of the primary things that drives me nuts is you guys that are too close to the bar. So I'm like, you need to get farther away from the bar. And it happens as you're going up anyway. Right. So as, as we're going up, we need to make sure that we are, you know, 
far enough away from the bar and, and even farther because as, as the bar goes up, you need more time to hit that peak height. And some people, the more you move them away, the less they can jump. You know, they just, they cannot function. They start diving towards the right or the left or whatever it is. And then when you put them in close, they look all bothered by the bar and everything, but that, that's how they learn how to function. You know, they, they drive their knee up and then they start contorting and they manage to get around it sometimes. And you're just like, oh, I don't know how you can do that. You know, so my brain has started thinking maybe the people that I have trouble with their knee drives, maybe I need to crowd them so that they really drive that knee back and across so that they don't hit the bar, which is now right by their ear, you know, because they're right on top of it. Maybe that's a good overcompensation drill. You know, I don't know. I, I had to personally, I had to go close to the bar mm-hmm. to, um, to help me. Yeah. Accelerate upwards. Um, I was one of those that if I, t- I was taking off too far and I was just diving towards the bar. Right. Um, so it's, I think it's getting a sweet spot, you know, you ultimately you do, you do have to have the right parabola. You know, we, we want, we want to kind of go up like that, you know, right. down. Um, the thing is, if we, if we are too far away, sometimes what we can do is we can actually travel along the bar and it's a longer parabola. Yes. So it is, it is getting that sweet spot. And sometimes you do have to move the run it back, but that's not always essential. I don't feel because yeah. you, you know, we only, we have a limit to how high we can jump. And if you are hitting the sweet spot each time, you will go to your maximum, you know, and actually yeah. altering the, the curve may well prove to be a detriment to your ability. Right. So it is obviously it's unique to the individual, isn't it? Oh, well, that's the, the great thing too. And, you know, for forever and a day, as I was coming along in, in both competing and then coaching, you would hear that argument over, oh, that guy's a power jumper and that guy's a speed guy. You know, it's speed versus power. And, you know, I I have the, the blessing of having been a, a kinesiology major at UCLA and I've got a, an, another degree in uh, exercise science, you know, in kinesiology from Cal State Long Beach. And um, a lot of biomechanics work, you know, a lot of forces and vectors and angles and all that kind of stuff. And I love that. I find it fascinating. Um, so having that background and, and hearing about, you know, the speed versus uh, power, you know, you see it, you see guys that jump run slower and they just gather those arms back and just blam, you know, they take off and they go straight up and then they tend to stall and they got to hit a great layout position if they can and then come down. And then there's other guys that are just, you know, and when they launch, they just sail, you know, and you're like, okay, yeah, there's two different styles. And then, you know, but also I was, when I was talking with someone, I think it was just Dario yesterday, I go, Hey, isn't power is, is force times velocity, right? So inside of the power equation is both ends of the spectrum uh, contained in the same formula, you know? So if you're a power jumper, supposedly power, you know, power equals force, you know, uh, against the ground times the speed that you're moving. I'm like, that's both things in the equation. I can produce force and I can do it fast or slow, right? So in my mind, I want to increase my power no matter which style I am. And if I can increase both of those, right, both the force produced and the speed at which I'm producing it, then I'm going to be able to do more power, right? And then try to use it, of course, in the right way at the takeoff. Still trying to figure out what type of jumper I am, but because I'm trying to gain for more speed, but mm-hmm. similar to a distance away from the bar, getting the right, right speed and velocity and power is almost is, you've got to get that sweet spot as well. Yeah, um, well, it doesn't it doesn't look like you're ambling up there from what I can see. You've got pretty good attack speed. You know, the the power jumpers just really kind of. You know, they've got a nice, smooth, I, I think of Charles Austin that way, you know, from those that Olympics, if you watch him, he's just, he just looks so strong. And even though I, I, I'm not sure how you would categorize uh, Derek uh, Drown, but, you know, or I forget how you say his name. I would say Drown. Is it Drew? Yeah, I, don't, I know, right? Tomato, tomato, right? So, but as I'm watching him in that, in the games in 2016, He's fast, but he also looks so powerful. That approach is just boom, 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 yeah, boom, yeah, boom. You know, and he's like, but when he got going, he looked just like Bondarenko. I mean, they were flying from that side, you know, and and hitting, you know, amazing, amazing heights. So it's like, 
man. And, and Barshim's no slouch either, you know, for a guy that's in, in some ways is a, is a double arm classic, double arm power guy, but he's moving. <laughs> it's like, he's not trotting up there. So it, it is fascinating on, on those ends. Well, let, Hey, let's take a, a little side route. I wanted to talk to you about um, what you're doing professionally. You said you're, you're, uh, what I read on Wikipedia was you're you're doing work with um, gait analysis, and you're also helping people with disabilities. What talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, well, like I said to I think I said just before we went on air, um, I'm training as an osteopath now. So uh, you know I'm doing a part time degree, but I've been a soft tissue therapist working with osteopathic principles and techniques for best part of 12 years um mm-hmm. i've always been fascinated by the body i've always been fascinated by how to get my own body moving better so it's like i became a student of my own sport but also a student of my own body over the years um i also do a lot of charity work with school visits but that's more to kind of try and inspire children to get more active but in terms of my clinical work i mean i'm in i'm in my clinic now um i've got you know certain um, certificates right and i'm currently on my me at my massage couch at the moment (laughs) Um, but I just you know I found a passion in in the body in eradicating pain and you know found a unique way to help people um, free up yeah whatever's restricting them Uh, I do that just because it's something to keep my mind active because I've always I've always been quite passionate that the mind can rebel at stagnation as the old Sherlock Holmes saying goes that if you just have athletics, it, if something goes wrong, like having a ruptured Achilles, for example, like I went through in 2018, uh, you don't um, you don't have anything to fall back on. You don't have anything to to occupy your mind, and it can actually be a downward slope if things start right. to go wrong. So I've always kept something going in the you know external to my athletics career to keep my mind active. Right. That's smart. Yeah. Uh, there's, it's amazing. Cause we, we also talk here, not just training and technique and, you know, the different things we've talked about here. I, I, I'm looking soon to talk with someone about nutrition and then, um, sports psychology is a huge area and, you know, high jumpers are in some ways, you know, I, I was, this is, you know, you can call it self-deprecation, but, I always thought of myself as a mental midget when it came to high jumping, but you know, it's, it's so on or off. Like for me, when I was on, I was going to beat you. I didn't care who you were, but if I was uh, in the next breath, you know, the, Oh my gosh, the wind just picked up. Oh, oh, now I'm going to have to run my curve faster. Like a prisoner of my own brain, like a overreaction, underreaction, you know, like, um, you know, fear, doubt, you know, can I do this? All those things. I don't, unless somebody I think has been an athlete at at any level, you know, when the pressure's on, you know, how do you perform when the chips are down? Like you say, like, what do you think about? How do you think? Are you confident? You know, um, I know for me, when everything was clicking, everything seemed to slow down, like get really, really slow. And I could, I could see everything happening almost like it was literally the way I like to watch video, (laughs) which is frame by frame, you know, where I'm picking out every little thing. And then when I was off, when things were going wrong from the time that I was standing back there going, okay, here goes, let's do the best we can. And, you know, when you think about that mentality, I'm like, that's never going to work. And so I'd, I would be running as fast as I could go up, jump, boom. I'd be sitting in the pit going, okay, what just happened? Like no recollection of anything, no technical analysis. I did I get my knee up? Did I get because I was in such a weird place in my head that I couldn't even do that. You know, it was outside of the time stream or completely unaware of it or whatever. So, you know, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. And then, you know, that confidence. I've I've told all my kids, I go, you know, I what every time you're jumping well or every time you're gonna make a bar, I would say 95% of the time it's not a surprise. Every time I PR'd that I can remember, I knew I was going to make it before I took off, if that makes any sense. I know you as a jumper probably, it's like either I've missed this enough times and I was close on that last one and I think I know what to do to fix this. So now I know I'm over or you're just having a great day, you know, or whatever it is. But I don't ever remember going, oh my God, I can't believe I just made that. (laughs) It was like, no, no, I expected to make that. I was, 
you know, I was pretty confident before I left. Yeah, it's a flow state, isn't it? It's a, it's feeling, not thinking. It's mm-hmm. like having that inner confidence that you know that you can get this this far. Um, and like you said, we can often get into our heads. We can often overthink things. And actually, the more you develop as a high jumper, I think, the more you find that inner flow and mm-hmm. think less, feel more. Right. Uh, yeah, I knew I knew that the two ten bar for Tokyo was. I, I, I remember going back to to my coach just saying, "This is the bar. This is the bar. It's going to win it." You know, and I mean, he just turned to me and said, "Well, you got to believe." <laughs> that was all he said. Right. But it is there is a lot of a lot of it is contributed to mindset. You know, if we were if we were robots, our bodies would be able to jump the same bar over and over again until we started fatiguing, in which case the bar would start to lower. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd yeah. hit that sweet spot as you warmed up and then you'd hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it. And then it would just start to slow down, you know, come down, sorry, as we fatigued. But the thing that prevents us from doing that is our mindset. And it's our, it's our, our you know, inner ability to think of, overthink about the, the bar that's right. gone up or think about the, the weather changing or another competitor jumping. We do overanalyze and the, what I've learned through my career is that the more we can focus on the feelings rather than what are we thinking the more we can enter that state of just a few cues where we can just focus on what we can feel and our movement right. the, the better we we will jump eventually awesome um was I, I was thinking as you you were talking about it you said you you had a unique um way of of dealing with these osteopathies, um, you know, removing pain from people. Is there, is this um, groundbreaking stuff that you're doing? Is this stuff that you were taught? What is, what kind of work are you um, doing? This? So I've, I've dabbled in um, visceral manipulation. I've dabbled with a, a, a French osteopath called Jean-Pierre Barral and the Barral Institute. And that is all about like, listening to what the body is telling you in some mm-hmm. respect it can seem quite you know voodoo but there's a lot of science that is is backed by a lot of science but it is more it's more about palpation and it's more about feel it's more about how does the tissue feel how does it differ to you know other parts of the body can you intrinsically move some of that tissue to let it go let let the restrictions go um and it has completely like altered and improved the way that i work um, together with certain fascial release techniques, I find that I can locate the cause of the issue, not just manage the symptoms and not just go to the area where it hurts. I go away from the area where it hurts and find what is actually blocking and stopping that body from moving efficiently. Um, but there's, you know, it's been, I've been doing this for 13 years now. So I've, I've had to continually learn and I'm always going to be learning. And it's the same with my high jump. I'm a student of my own sport. I'm still learning. I'm 34 now. I'll be going until at least 36. Right. And, you know, who else, who knows what I can achieve if I just continue to learn about how to move better. Right. Uh, I love that being in that area. That's uh, an interesting double. Most, most athletes, I, I don't remember anybody that I've met, you know, as a high jumper that is doing what you're doing. So you've got the, almost the both the training aspects from your own training and then you've got rehab and and that kind of you know and then also just um what i would call pre-covery or <laughs> you know all that kind of stuff in, involved and then um the the last thing i was thinking of was you mentioned a, a rupture of your achilles um in 2018 i think you said was that was that your left or your right and how how traumatic was it and how long did it take to get back and so that was my left, um, so my telepes leg. Uh, it was a very high rupture. It was eight centimeters up from the heel or the calcaneus. Um, it was almost like it was a ticking time bomb because it was right at the top of my scar from the surgery I had as a baby. Wow. So it was almost like it was destined to happen. Um, it was like a gunshot when it when it went. felt like someone had taken a baseball bat to my my calf um went to stand up and it was like I could put no weight through it 
but I was very fortunate because I think I totally severed the the tendon. Um, I didn't feel too much pain. I started to feel more and more pain as it went on. I had to be put on morphine and gas and air, but it was just the shock. And I thank my stars that I'd done a lot of mindfulness work because I was able to kind of like accept it quite quickly. It was like, okay, I've got to deal with this now. Right. And do the things that I needed to do in order to return. And it was a long journey. It took me over a year before I was jumping again. Um, I then developed a bit of a knee issue on my other leg. Um, but I worked hard. I worked through it. Um, and then in 2019, at the end of 2019 in November, I became world champion. And then the following year, or two years later, um, I then became Paralympic champion. So it gave me the perfect opportunity to learn even more about my body. And I used it as an opportunity rather than something that was going to like, you know, be a career ending thing. So, so being high up on your, on there, I was wondering that when you said rupture, cause I know there's, you know, rupture is a, is a loose term. If we want to say that, I know there's anywhere from partial, right. You can get some, some tearing, you can get it to go halfway across and then there's catastrophic snap, like you said, where the, you know, did it roll up the back of your, your leg, like yeah. a window shade? Like I've heard that description before. Yeah, I had to, I had to have surgery uh, two days later. Um, and my surgeon is brilliant. It's a guy called Bill Ribbons. And he, uh, he reattached it. Um, and he also attached it to the plantaris muscle to give it a bit more extra strength. Okay. Um, and it seemed to do the job I needed it to. But it did take a long time to, you know, for, for a foot that can't plant a flex and get the calf loading to strengthen right. it up, I had to use TENS machines. I had to use uh, reformers, Pilates-style reformers, to really work the intrinsic muscles to get as much activity as I could to develop it enough to, um, to recover. Right. Um, but I had a good team um, and I worked hard, worked hard to get back. So uh, the other thing I've heard about this and uh, one of my most fascinating classes when I was an undergrad at UCLA was the biomechanics of musculoskeletal injuries. And we did, they, they used to show us film of, you know, a femur and a tibia and the ligaments in between, and they would just pull them apart, you know, with machines and watch how they ruptured, right? So you're you're studying on a cadaver, you know, the methodology or whatever. There could be twisting, loading. There was, you know, these different things. And what I had heard also, and and you'd see the the um, what do you call it? A microscopic view of the threads. You know, when when these collagen fibers, when you pull them apart, when they rupture, they said it, it looks like spaghetti strings on a mop, where they just go like this, right? Wow. So. I've I've heard that one of the biggest challenges is to go back in there and try to line up, you know, all the fibers again, right? It's like this this micro surgery where, you know, do they just do they lop off the spaghetti ends and then just tie the two new ends together, or do they, you know, try to to fit that all back together? What what do you know about that? Because that's I, that's, that's grim know. to talk about, but yeah, I do not know at all what what um what he was able to do. The guy was a miracle worker. Um, it's maybe a question I'll have to pose to him um, if I ever get a chance to see him again. Uh, but yeah, I just I think there's just so much so much complexity. But whatever he did, um, and whatever you know the strength work he he did alongside uh, the actual surgery, like it did what it needed to. Um, so right. you know, I would just like. You know, thank, thank you. Did you ever have a, um, if, if it had been your takeoff leg, do you think you would have been able to come back and and jump as high? Who knows? Uh, Touch woods, you know, that never happens. Um, I know jumpers who have returned. Barsham's a a prime example. Uh, You know, he returned. Um, I'm sure he had the best medics in the world on his side, but he returned really quickly. So I think it's possible. Um, I think surgery is a very good option if you want to improve, you know, improve the longevity of the sport. Um, 
but you know for anyone that's gone going through it or has gone through it you know salute you for the hard work you have to put in to, right. to get back i know what it feels like um but it is possible it is possible to return if you um are patient and do the right things it's it's amazing now what they've done. I know even back in this is in the late eighties now, or it might have been the early nineties, Doug Nordquist, uh, a friend of mine and you know, former Olympian and actually great golfer. He's one of the he's those guys like you, these great athletes. He's we were playing golf one day. I tell tell my friends this story. I go, I'm playing this this one hole, it's it's about two hundred and forty yards if you hit it around the corner, but he decided to hit it up over the trees from the tee box with a five wood and he hit it and knocked it on the green. And I'm looking at them going, these darn Olympians. I go, you you put them even with a golf club in their hands and they do these amazing things, right? So uh, that's just a background on Doug. He's a great athlete. But he he had a complete rupture of his ACL on his takeoff leg. And this is, you know, not a – wasn't in the Stone Age, but it was definitely still 30 years ago, you know, and the techniques have gotten better, I'm sure. But they basically took a, a cadaver ACL – put it in there, stapled it on both sides, roughed it up a little bit and to get it some blood flow. And he was back on the track, you know, and uh, he was jumping within a year and ended up jumping his PR on that cadaver reconstructed leg at, at seven, eight, three quarters. So um, like you said, it's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing what they can do. You know, I mean, and I'm sure a hundred years ago, you know, you rupture your ACL doing anything. That's pretty much, you know, you're limping around in a cast and it heals however it can. And then after that, you know, you're like just working on the farm or whatever, you know, trying to, trying to do anything, but now we can come bouncing back. So, all right. Well, Jonathan, uh, I know it's getting late for you over there. We've gone over an hour here. Um, I, I could think of a million more questions, but, uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, so thankful that you took the time out to spend with us. Um, it's been a lovely conversation. So thank you, Troy. Thank you. And uh, God bless you as you keep working hard towards your, your next Olympics. And uh, I'm going to be praying that we get to see the big cameras on you so we can watch when those chips are down and see you come through in the clutch again, like you did in Tokyo. Well, if you are, if you're, if you're interested um, on the, the old channel four OD uh, on demand or channel, I can't remember the actual, um, what the app is called now but um following tokyo i was then i then was in for filming for a show called sas who dares wins so the celebrity sas who dares wins so I, that's just aired so you can always catch up on that unfortunately they didn't see much of me but i you know because the the shows always focus on those glamour models and you know <laughs> with millions of instagram followers but I did well on that. Um, and you know, you'll get to see again, something is more about the mindset more than anything when it comes to things like that. And hopefully I'll be able to take that into my athletics career. So awesome. I'm a, I will uh, send you on Instagram, um, a little bit of Dario's stuff. Um, there's one, one thing in particular I was thinking about when you were talking about the agility, the side to side and, and the work you're doing on your left leg, uh, uh, you might find it interesting. So I'll send that along as soon as I get a minute. Thank you very much. All right. Hey, Jonathan, a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, get some good sleep. You get sounds like you got a lot of work you got to do <laughs> yeah. the next day. All right, sir. All right. Take care. You too.